Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Hi, Peter. Thank you very much. I'm doing well and looking forward to the podcast. Today, we have the supreme good fortune to be joined by special guest, Dr. Bernie Mori. Dr. Mori needs no introduction to most listeners, but those of you who aren't aware, I'll briefly detail his accomplishments. After earning his medical degree from UT Galveston, Dr. Mori completed his residency at the Mayo Clinic, while simultaneously earning a master's in biomechanics from the University of Minnesota. He then served in the U.S. Air Force before returning to the Mayo Clinic, where he remained for his career and where he served as chairman. During this time, he earned numerous awards from the Mayo Clinic, from AOSSM, and from the ASCS. Completed multiple fellowships, including the ABC Traveling Fellowship and a Fulbright Scholarship. He served as president of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, the American Orthopedic Association, and the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society. His research contributions are too numerous to mention with over 311 citations on PubMed. He's perhaps best known for his contribution to the elbow, where his detailed study of the biomechanics allowed him to conceptualize and develop a total elbow arthroplasty with survival equivalent to total hip arthroplasty in the setting rheumatoid arthritis, which was a dramatic advance in care. His text, The Elbow and Its Disorders, continues to be the definitive reference for those who care for elbow problems. Dr. Murray, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Peter and Rachel, and thank you for that uh, nice introduction. Dr. Mori, thank you so much for being on our first podcast. For the listeners at home, the goal of this new ASCS podcast is to discuss all things shoulder and elbow, including topics on novel surgeries, techniques, studies, and perhaps most exciting, interviewing the legends of shoulder and elbow surgery. Dr. Mori, we were hoping to take this opportunity with our inaugural podcast to talk about the role the ASCS has played in your career and what the ASCS means to you. So, without further ado, our first question for you is, how has your involvement with the ASCS enriched your career? Well, as, um, as we uh, develop our interest and uh, uh, progress through our career, uh, there are a few things that become very, very obvious. And one of them, is is a we have chosen a path of continuous learning and continuous education and one of the easiest ways to accomplish that uh, kind of universal goal of our colleague is to identify and to affiliate with those that are of like mind and so as you develop a, a particular interest in a subspecialty the uh, stimulation and the opportunity to talk about areas of of our practice that are of interest to us um, with individuals who also have similar um, issues or problems or uh, uh, questions, concerns in their practice is, is very stimulating and extremely valuable. Um, we've picked a, a, a subspecialty that certainly the shoulder is represented pretty uh, formally in the uh, burden of disease, if you will. The elbow kind of not so much. So uh, between those two anatomic parts, uh, the Shoulder and Elbow Society does provide a very uh, um, rewarding opportunity to uh, communicate with uh, individuals of like minds that have similar issues, problems, uh, questions as we do. So we've, we've uh, elected a specialty that is, requires us to continue to learn and to continue to improve and this is just one of the best mechanisms to achieve an essential feature of our chosen profession. 
Now, Dr. Mori, you've accomplished so much in your career. What are some of the things you've accomplished through the ASCS that you're most proud of? Well, you know, I, I recognize that I've been very fortunate in my career. Um, as you've heard so many times, uh, timing is everything. And I came uh, into our profession at a time, maybe you might even call it the golden times as some have, where implants and prosthetic development was just um, um, uh, becoming uh, an essential part of what we did, more, uh, more so even than you might say trauma management, which was the hallmark of our profession years ago. And so uh, the timing issue uh, gave me an opportunity to um, contribute to the body of knowledge because there was very, very little known in the uh, in the 70s about uh, elbow problems. The artificial implants, as I'm sure you know, for hips and knees were, well, hips first were very successful, knees followed shortly thereafter. The early knee implants were not successful, but it didn't take long to get the generic condylar and become successful. Those things were, were motivated by communication uh, of ideas among uh, colleagues and uh, societies, hip society, knee society formed around that, uh, as did ours. And so I think that uh, being a member of the Shoulder and Elbow Society and having an opportunity to discuss my questions and issues uh, with uh, colleagues uh, kind of distilled colleagues that were picked and chosen and, and were members because of their interest and their contribution uh, kind of gave me one up in a way of, of having an opportunity to relatively easily access the opinions and thoughts um, and ideas of others. And uh, again, the show, Shoulder and Elbow is a very collegial organization. And so these uh, uh, inputs were provided in a very comfortable and casual manner in many instances. And so without the uh, Shoulder and Elbow Society, I think I would have still developed my interest. I think we would have still contributed somewhat. <clears throat> but there's no question in my mind that I would not have been as uh, fortunate uh, as I have been in, in being able to provide some insights without the uh, collegiality and the uh, input of colleagues from the ASCS. And if you go back and look at the first edition of the shoulder and elbow, I'm sorry, not shoulder and elbow, but but the elbow and its disorders, um, some of the real uh, important contributors in that uh, first edition were individuals that I met through the shoulder and elbow society, like Hugh Tullis from Houston, who was one of the early sports medicine people on the elbow that many people probably don't know today. Uh, Ralph Coonrad, one of my lifelong friends, was... uh, uh, contributed on uh, all or nine unions. Frank Job became a very close friend whom I met through the Shoulder and Elbow Society. And so the uh, organization provided me a, uh, you might say, an environment that, uh, to, to um, uh, identify individuals who were also contributing and interested in contributing. And then we got together, so to speak, and they were willing to contribute to the uh, to the book. And that was a very useful and rewarding in my career. Dr. Murray, thank you so much. Your contributions to the society and to shoulder and elbow surgery as a whole have been invaluable to all of us. And in particular, surgeons early on in their career learning the subtleties and nuances of the specialty. Peter and I have both really benefited from early involvement in the ASCS, um, early on in our careers, and in particular attending the ASCS annual meeting. 
Can you tell us a few things that you've learned at ASDS meetings over the years? Um, while you're, you've been on faculty uh, too many times to count, are there things that you've taken away from the meetings that have helped you in caring for patients? Well, specific uh, uh, recollections of um, Pearl, so to speak, that I learned at meetings is um, something I haven't thought too much about. Um, I, ha I can recall some things, though. Um, one uh, is, uh, I think it was only the second or third meeting of the organization. <clears throat> and a colleague um, by, by the name of Fred Ewald, who many may know, but sadly many may not, designed a very uh, nice implant called the Capitella Conner. It was a non-total elbow. But he also was interested in non-prosthetic replacement. And so along with another well-known designer named Peter Walker that I hope the younger people will recognize and suspect they don't, um, who was one of the co-designers of the condylar knee, um, designed a device called a distraction device. And I remember when Fred first presented it, he presented a case report of a person from South America, a physician, who had a stiff elbow and Fred released him, did not to an inner position, distracted the two bones and began movement. And then he presented an outcome that some might consider to be not quite uh, perfect, um, but, it, but, it, but it was kind of like the uh, shoulder term limited goal surgery. Uh, this provided some function uh, that uh, heretofore was un, uh, a dysfunctional extremity. And I remember that very vividly because he did not interpose any tissue. Now, I took a little different course, um, and I uh, did the same kind of thing with the I'm, – I'm talking about now alternatives to total joint in young people. And so I got the insight from Fred and Peter Walker about the interposition and then, uh, I mean, distraction, arthroplasty. And then I added an inner position. And that, that created a whole um, option for me in my career to treat young people with uh, the dysfunctional elbows that I thought were too young for an artificial implant or had too much of a burden in their uh, occupation to have the limitations of a total elbow. And all that, I, I can tell you, the room that we were in, that meeting happened to have been in Rochester, Minnesota. And I can I can go to that room right now and tell you where I was sitting and where Fred was standing when he was uh, presenting that uh, material. So I found that to be uh, extremely uh, helpful in my entire career. And then I can also remember the um, amazement as I was sitting in the audience and listening to some of the guys that were more sports medicine oriented and um, showing what they could do with an arthroscope. And who is a very uh, uh, prominent member of our organization is everybody. And is also a very close personal friend. Uh, was showing the ability to release a contracted elbow, contracted capsule arthroscopically. And I had fooled around a little bit, but did not have really the courage, to be honest with you, to be as aggressive as Buddy was, because I'm, I'm sure I wasn't as good at it. And um, uh, saying what Buddy could do was a great uh, stimulus and motivator to say, you know, I, I can do that. I can take it to that level. And then, I, and then fortunately, uh, I was able to do that. So uh, those are two uh, specific presentations that I remember that, that kind of changed my practice. 
The third that I also recall was I was on a panel with the Jimmy Andrews and some other people, and we were talking about how you handle the ulnar nerve in uh, various um, uh, circumstances. And in this instance, it was managing the ulnar nerve in um, uh, medial collateral ligament reconstruction. And as you may or may not know, in the early years, this was one of the most controversial questions about the Tommy John procedures. What do you do with the ulnar nerve? And the techniques would tend to irritate the nerve. And most people may not know that about 20% of the early procedures were failures because of ulnar nerve symptoms. And so um, I remember Jim saying, you know, I translated it in everybody. And that was a big um, insight for me because I would try to decide when to leave it and when to transpose it and all. And I thought somebody with that experience and that uh, pressure to be operating on all these uh, 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 extremely high-performing professional athletes would probably have a better sense on things than I would with the patient population I was dealing with. So managing the ulnar, the ulnar nerve in medial collateral ligament reconstruction and the uh, opportunities of arthroscopy and the concept of uh, interposition arthroplasty are three things that I did not learn from the literature that I learned from attending the uh, ASCS and uh, during the uh, meeting and presentation. One of the things you touched upon, Dr. Mori, was the camaraderie you, you've, you've, you've felt through the, through the society and the uh, meetings you've attended over the years. Do you have any favorite memories or stories from ASCS meetings you've, you've attended over the years? Well, you know, I've got to tell you, I think these questions are kind of hard because I haven't thought much about it, you know, along these lines. Um, I um, I remember the opportunity uh, in, uh, in Austin when I was president to um, – I sit down and visit with uh, Frank Job, and uh, Frank was always, it was a very close personal friend, and he was a very sage uh, individual, and I remember uh, just discussing with him then uh, in that meeting, uh, which I happen to remember because I was responsible for the meeting, but I remember just uh, his story and his, um, and his career, and, and I talked to him specifically how he um, decided to do the Tommy John procedure. And, uh, and that's kind of a treasured moment in, in my recollection. I also remember a meeting when, um, very, very early in my career, when we were, um, just, just developing a successful total joint and uh, talking with Ralph Coonrad about, um, uh, opportunities to improve the implant, his implant. And I remember how gracious he was to, I said, you know what? I think, I think we need to kind of, loosen up the articulation it's real rigid and you know our kinematic studies show that if we have some laxity maybe we can dampen out the stresses and lessen the bone cement interface stress that's in loosening and i'll never forget he said well you know do whatever you want i said you know and i think your implants got a very good basic design that possible things could really make it get better and i remember and he said well bernie just do whatever you want and i said well is it okay if i talk to zimmer about it he says oh yeah that'd be fine so uh, the, the, the giants that uh, uh, in in our uh, in our area were so gracious to talk to this young guy and to uh, give him insight, and uh, those are two of the areas. That, of course, our senior men. That I, I pray to God that the younger individuals that may be listening to this will will 
remember their name and, and their memory because they were they you know we all stand on the shoulder of giants and I certainly did and uh, they those are two of my very favorite um, shoulder and elbow people and um, and contributed so much to our specialty and certainly contributed to my career and uh, to uh, as, as, as friends to my uh, sense of friendship and identity. Dr. Mori, it's just incredible to hear about this insight um, and the years that you've been able to to work with just at, with yourself, such legends in the field and hearing some of this. It's just amazing for Peter and myself and I'm sure our listeners to reflect on this. So thank you. You know, you, you've had the opportunity to teach and train so many shoulder and elbow surgeons over the years. And, um, and I've had the good fortune of interacting with many who have learned under you and their stories are incredible. Um, and generations of patients have and are going to continue to benefit from this. And so it's just really, um, it's a special thing. What do you think, you know, knowing that the ASDS is really um, trying to uh, focus a lot of their efforts on engaging younger members and as surgeons new in practice, what do you think is the most important thing for our younger or candidate members to know about the ASDS? Maybe things they might not know. Um, what is your take on that from your experience here? Well, Again, kind of a provocative question. Uh, the, the first thing that I would hope that the younger uh, individuals would recognize and um, identify with is that um, I think, in, at least in my opinion, this is personal opinion, that the senior members of our organization, and it's not exclusive to senior members, but I'm talking about my generation, whatever that means, had a real strong commitment to service. And, uh, and, and as God is my witness, we actually did try to think about what's in the patient's best interest. And I think we have a special organization that's not so large as to you lose yourself in it. And I think the early leadership of our organization were, you know, exceptional individuals that contributed so much and they um, had a very strong, um, not just work ethic, but patient orientation. And I would hope that our younger members would uh, not, they would not have the ability to recognize that directly, but I would hope that that reality that did exist in the founding of our organization continues to pour through the subsequent membership so that as individuals come into our organization, they can identify with a strong sense of service and a strong sense of commitment to the specialty. And one thing that I hope the specialty recognizes, kind of flipping it around to now to the leadership, and I'm very pleased Mark Frankel is going to be the incoming president because I know him very well. In fact, he was one of my fellows. And uh, he, uh, I think, does uh, demonstrate this very, very, very strongly is a specialty organization, the, the identity of a person, any organization, but if, as a professional, your identity to your professional organization um, can come about from several motivations. Um, one of them is you identify with the people. And uh, I think the ASCS is very strong there because so many of the individuals of leadership and the, the members are well known for their contributions to the to the area. But the real trump card that will determine whether or not somebody flourishes in the organization, uh, identifies with it, 
or feels as though it's a value is you've got to uh, consider whether or not this organization is relevant to you and to who you want to be and what you want to be. And if if uh, attending the meetings and listening to the dialogue and the presentation, and a lot of it is in the social side where you're meeting with somebody, you're talking to somebody that you didn't know before, or maybe somebody that helped train somebody or has a reputation that you want to meet, uh, all those opportunities exist. And so once participation in this organization and the final analysis is going to come down to something very, very simple, is it relevant to you? And if it's relevant, then you will participate and you will grow in it. If it's, if it's not relevant, you may try to become involved in all. But if it's not relevant, why? Why would you continue? So see, the burden goes both ways. I think there's a tremendous burden on leadership to remain relevant and to change. You've, you've, you've got to keep your feet moving when you're receiving the serve. So you've got to keep your feet moving if you're responsible for an organization and it's a strategic plan in this direction. And that direction has to recognize what's the reality of the times and it has to read what's the reality of the future as best you can. So a professional organization like ours, the leadership has that burden of responsibility to be relevant. And then the younger individuals who are coming in have, have asked to join, so to speak, initially because they felt it was real, felt it was worth joining. And we have to make very sure as an organization that we don't disappoint the young people. And if we don't disappoint them, then they will grow. And if they grow, then the patient benefits because they're going to grow in knowledge and the desire for service. Um. Definitely, I think it's interesting to talk about growth and the importance of the society for professional growth. You know, when you think back to your own growth, like if you think back to 30 years ago, did, did this envision, is this, did, is this where you envisioned you, were, you would be? I mean, is this something you could not even have imagined at that point? You mean the position that I'm in now? Or Correct. It was yeah. my, what, where, um, and where you've been, the journey you've been through. <laughs> Well, I've, I've been asked uh, variations of that quite a bit, actually. And uh, I'm a very simple-minded person and very simplistic. And um, I think, uh, I know I've been very, very fortunate. I was given certain gifts, so to speak. I, I'm One of my gifts, I'm, I'm partly Italian, and so I'm really passionate about stuff. And I really like what I'm doing. And I was given enough talent and, and energy, I guess, to be reasonably good at it. And that really helped patients, and so that motivated me. But I was in a good environment. I had exceptionally good partners that uh, encouraged me and supported me. And I, and then the Shoulder and Elbow Society was a great nurturing environment that supported me and nurtured me. And I think it does others as well. But as I look back in my career, I think um, much of my, if you, I hate to call it success, but much of my activity and is that I came in in a very good time where not much was known about the elbow. I had a passion to try to contribute. I was in a very good institution that supported that. I had exceptional colleagues in my department that supported it. I was fortunate enough to join a specialty society that uh, stimulated it and allowed it to grow. And so I would say the uh, ASCS is one of the three or four key ingredients that um, uh, allowed me to be uh, uh, 
to achieve some of the reasons that I came into medicine for. In fact, virtually all the reasons I came into medicine, I, I think I was able to have some some degree of impact on. Dr. Mori, thank you so much. This next question, it might be a tough one, um, but that's what we're here for, is uh, this one's about the future. You know, some of the major advances in shoulder and elbow surgery over the last several decades um, include certainly arthroscopy and in particular arthroscopic rotator cuff repair, and of course the total elbow arthroplasty and its advances in technique and design, and the reverse shoulder arthroplasty and how that's really revolutionized our ability to care for a variety of shoulder conditions. Um, what do you see as the next big thing in shoulder or elbow surgery coming up in the next decade? And what's going to be on the forefront of our headlines and in our journals? Well, actually, this isn't as hard as you think to answer because I thought a lot about it. But I'm not saying my answers are right. It's just I thought about it. So um, uh, in my time, to, yeah, first of all, it's a good question, and you characterized it very well. So in my days, uh, joint the, the very first FDA-approved total joint in the United States was in March of 1969. It was done at the Mayo Clinic. It was a hip replacement done by Mark Coventry. Now, that wasn't the first hip replaced, but it was the first one done by FDA approval of the, of the cement. So I started my residency in 71, so I was two years after the first joint was replaced. So total joint certainly revolutionized. And then when I was a senior resident getting ready to go into the military in 1976, arthroscopy was coming about. That was um, from, what, uh, 15 years later, roughly. So now we have arthroscopy coming in. And that revolutionized everything, just the diagnostic part. And then all of a sudden, you get into all the therapeutic applications. And the thing that is so interesting of arthroscopy is continuing to evolve. I mean, all the things that are being, um, all the conditions that are being addressed arthroscopically, it boggles the mind. Even when you thought there's nothing left, here comes some other advances. And often they're not so much intra-articular, but they're extra-articular um, uh, applications. So what else is out there that can possibly, uh, we could possibly uh, consider? Um, I actually think there's two categorical arenas that we should keep our eye on. I think they're a way off, a ways off in a way, in, in some ways. Um, but um, wait a minute, I'm going to add a third. I'm going to add a third. So there's three. The first, I think, is biologics. Now, this is not a, a great insight in the, in the world at all because biologics is growing like a madman. You know, it kind of I know it didn't start with PRP, but, but a lot of us think of it. The first thing we think of is something like PRP and then stem cells. And then you have bioengineered uh, 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 devices, so to speak, or, or products. So I think biologics is going to continue to emerge as a major force in changing the, the landscape of uh, patient management, uh, particularly in the areas of regeneration and stimulating growth on the one hand, and probably continuing to enhance uh, osseous union on the other. Um, a second, let me see, how do I want to do this? I may want to save the, I'll flip the second because I want to save the third for last. Um, I think uh, the second um, major advance is um, understanding the social environment that we're working in. And what do I mean by that? We cannot continue as a 
as a medical profession or a subspecialty to not be aware of the financial implications of our of our, our clinical decisions. We simply have to be more cost effective in our attitudes. And uh, if we don't, I think we're going to face major challenges that is going to suppress. And this is important. It's not. I wasn't, I'm not going to say our, our income is going to suppress research and our ability to develop further treatment options because we have demonstrated that they all are very costly and we aren't conscientious enough in the way that we are managing our patients. The, the success of the future of medicine is healthcare reform. And there are four words that define healthcare reform in my opinion. And that's evidence-based, cost-effective. And I just don't think our profession, I don't think medicine is there, orthopedics is not there, shoulder and elbow isn't there. It's nothing against shoulder and elbow. None of us are there. So I think that's going to be impressed on us. So one of the things that I have done in, in my waning time at, at Mayo uh, is to try to encourage individuals to do cost-effectiveness analysis so that we understand better what is the relationship of the treatment and, the, and its cost in, in the truest sense of the term. So I think that that's called health science research, and I think health science research is going to play a, a bigger role in our practice and our decision-making. So I think that's going to be a second major trend. And then the third, which I think is going to trump everything, is a better understanding of what we call host variation. And if you think about it, uh, and I thought a lot about it, because in the elbow I get a, a C3 fracture and I fix it, and for reasons that are obscure, the guy has an arc of motion at 20 to 130 with no pain. And the next guy has the same problem, I fix it, and he's stiff. I mean, it makes no sense. And then just think of all the instances where you've, uh, you see a patient come back and they the, re, the response to your surgery or whatever you've done, you say, GD, I mean, what the heck is going on here? And I think that we don't fully understand at all. We don't, not fully, we hardly understand at all the genetic variations that cause different host responses to the same stimulus. So this is a line of research that we've been involved with in Mayo when I was leading and that some of the younger guys are carrying on. So I think host variation, why do people get ectopic bones? Some do, some don't. Um, the uh, response to surgery, response to injury, response to disease varies so widely. If we could identify through some screening process the uh, genetic makeup that makes somebody, say, predisposed to arthrofibrosis, that should direct some kind of a treatment that allows us to avoid it. So I think the three, uh, those are to me the three trends. I think the biologics, the uh, uh, health science research that emphasizes cost effectiveness of selection of care, and then uh, the host variation are going to be the arenas of the future. That's um, God, that's awesome. That gives us so much to think about and so much to work on for um, for the future. Um, it sounds like but, we have our work cut out for us. Is there anything else that you wanted to cover? Anything else you want to discuss um, on this first inaugural podcast? Well, um, you know, I'm not sure who's going to be listening in, if anybody, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but uh, yes, uh, one of the things that I feel really passionate about, and I've tried to touch on it, 
and I talk about it sometimes at graduations and all, is that uh, just to encourage our colleagues who have picked this subspecialty uh, not to forget that we went into this specialty not for ourselves but for others. And, and I'm so disappointed to see so many trends that seem to be so uh, self-oriented. And that just cannot be what's happening. Uh, it cannot happen to medicine or, or to our uh, subspecialty. And here's the thing I would like to leave the, maybe the attendees with. Um, when, when you finish your training and you go into your practice and you go into your community and you petition for something called privileges, and then you get privileges. And unfortunately, I th- I'm, I'm concerned that some people may mistake the word privileges are privileged. And we can't ever think of ourselves as being privileged in the negative sense. In my mind, when you get privileges as a physician, you are privileged to be a servant. So that doesn't mean you're special. It means that you serve. And that, to me, is something that it kind of underlines a whole underlies a whole lot of where our future direction is, is the attitude of our servants, the attitude of our physicians. And I honestly pray to God and, and would uh, uh, recommend that we just give some thought to why we went into our profession. And I do pray it's for the right reason, because the advance in our, in our specialty the success of our very special, very special shoulder and elbow society is predicated on advances. It's also predicated on the attitude. But it is also strongly predicated on the attitude of our members. And I would hope that would be pure. And I know that sounds corny, probably, but I actually believe it. Well, it's certainly a wonderful sentiment to end on. Yeah, it's just incredibly insightful. And I think, um, you know, I, I'll speak on behalf of Peter and myself, but likely all of our listeners, um, I, I, you know, it doesn't sound corny to us. I think we all need to reflect on why we went into this field and what it means to truly take care of patients. And I think, you know, none of us could have worded it any better than you. It's, um, it doesn't mean we're privileged. It means that uh, we have to serve and we have to serve our patients um, we'd really like to thank you, Dr. Mori, for joining us today and making this inaugural podcast incredibly special for all of us. We value your experience, your insight, and your expertise, um, and just your influence on so many young shoulder and elbow surgeons throughout the country and throughout the world. To the listeners, thank you so much for listening in. And for Peter Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'm honored to have been participating. Thank you.